Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Mark and I'm your host. This one gets a little rough in spots. My guest today is drummer Kofi Baker. He's the son of cream drummer Ginger Baker. Kofi talks a lot about the complicated and sometimes frightening relationship he had with his parents, Ginger in particular. He's completely candid about his first experiences with drugs, which were supplied by his dad. He also describes the period of his life when he was homeless and how he would tie his drums to him at night so they wouldn't get stolen. But even after the beatings, the abandonment, the years of neglect, Kofi has found that his goal in life is to keep Ginger Baker's legacy alive. To that end, he's playing in the music of Cream with Eric Clapton's nephew, Will Johns. It's a multimedia experience with photos, videos, stories, and the music of Cream. So go to kofibaker.com or musicofcream.com. Follow Kofi on social media. It's pretty easy to find him. Give us a follow at Performance ANX. Rate and review the show. And you can help us out through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. I hope you enjoy Kofi Baker on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Real simple. Yeah, I can just say, my name's Kofi Baker. I'm not an asshole like my dad. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I will use that. Oh, I am an asshole like my dad, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that remains to be seen. Okay. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll find out. Yeah. You can judge that by the end of the interview. Exactly. Okay, all right. Are you ready? Okay, I'm Kofi Baker, and hopefully I don't get performance anxiety, because I'm on performance anxiety. But we're going to be doing the Music of Cream tour in spring. Uh, Check out musicofcream.com or kofibaker.com, and check out this podcast again. Weird. You're going to get performance anxiety going on performance anxiety. (laughs) What's What's it? It's called performance. What's it? Say the whole thing. Oh, so that's what it is? It's just, I'm on performance anxiety and I don't have it. <laughs> I'll just sit down then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to right. take my shoes off myself here. Finished up dinner and ran over here, got all set up. and 
Yeah, I'm just eating my dinner right now. Do you want to? Do you want me to give you a few minutes? You can you finish up your dinner. No, that's all right. You sure? I can I can munch away while we're talking. Sounds good. <laughs> I had a, a, I've had that happen a few times. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm always eating. I'm oh. like always eating. I eat every two hours, so you know. Oh wow! Oh my god! Yeah, goodness. like six, seven meals a day. Jeez, man, yeah. I that's. I wish I could do that, but they won't let me take that many breaks at work. Oh, you see, when I used to teach, I used to uh, set the students with a, an exercise and then go cook my food. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, good timing. Yeah, I just, I like to eat all the time. It's healthier to eat in small meals anyway, so. I've heard that. Well, because we're hunter-gatherers, we used to graze, you know, your body... I mean, I, I studied fitness training when I was younger. I used to do a bit of fitness training and stuff, and and if okay. you have someone who's overweight, the reason they're overweight is because they're only eating one or two times a day. So your oh. body goes into starvation mode. It stores fat because your body needs nutrition every two, three hours. So, you know, your body's going to see metabolism. Slow your body's very intelligent. Your whole thing is very intelligent. You know, your body will slow your metabolism down and store fat. So it, no, it doesn't know when the next meal is going to be. Oh, wow. So it's constantly... Your body knows it. It knows it's getting food. It doesn't store anything, and your metabolism goes up. I may have to try that. That's all right. Well, I'm I'm gonna mention that to my wife, and I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna do that because that sounds. I can stand to lose a few pounds still. So. Right, well, I mean, drinking a lot of water too. I mean, you've got to drink a lot of water. Right. You know? She tells me that too. She, I got to drink a lot more water than I do, and uh, I go up and down with that. Sometimes I'm really good, and then when I'm drinking a lot of water, I'm in the bathroom constantly so well that's good i mean it's good to be you know because you're you're flushing your body out yeah i got i have I to mean, explain that to my supervisor though i got i've just been drinking a lot i gotta go to the bathroom again nothing weird's <laughs> going on i have a bottle behind my drum kit so i don't have to keep going up the stairs <laughs> to the toilet <laughs> uh, i don't think they'll let me do that at my desk <laughs> yeah. They may have a problem with that part. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. This is uh, this is really awesome. I'm really happy to have you on. Yeah, fun. Always fun doing these interviews. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. I just actually just had uh, Will Johns on a few days ago. Oh, okay. So uh, getting to know the music, the, the band, the music of Cream, really well. So it's right. uh, I, I mentioned to him that. I was going to have you on and he told me a couple things. Oh, I was no. going to, I was going to wait to ask you this, but I think I might start off with this because he told me I need to ask you about two things in particular. He said, ask Kofi about broccoli. Rockets. <laughs> broccoli. Oh, broccoli. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I eat broccoli every night, a whole bowl of broccoli. It's one of my favorite things to eat with oh. lemon juice. So uh, after the gigs, of course, I'm steaming broccoli, which if you haven't steamed broccoli, smells like farts. Yes. <laughs> so um, the whole bus smells like a big fart, you know, um, unless I get time to steam my broccoli after the show in the venue, and then the venue smells like farts. But um, <laughs> either way, I'm steaming broccoli and eating eggs hey, at night before I go to bed. That was the other thing he, he said. He said, ask him about steamed eggs on the tour bus. Well, I mean, I normally don't steam my eggs, but <laughs> scrambling eggs on a tour bus is kind of hard. Oh, so, bet. you know, I have to use a microwave or I use my steamer. I travel with a steamer and a cooker. 
So nice. I have a case with, you know, a cooker and a steamer and everything I need, a smoothie maker, because um, I eat healthy. So when I'm on the road, you know, I go to the store and stock up a cooler and I just eat that. Everybody else, you know, eats whatever they're going to eat. But right. I, I'm, you know, I'm a vegetarian now anyway, so oh, okay. um, don't eat meat. I mean, I eat a little bit of meat here and there, some fish here and there, but um you know, I'm not a meat eater anymore. Um, I, I, I studied it so hard being a fitness trainer and everything. And you won't believe this, but the same people, the lawyers and all the same people that were telling you cigarette smoking is good for you are the same people telling you meat's good for you. I'm trying to remember what I saw a couple of months ago. If it was an ad or if it was an old TV show and they... They were saying that some woman was pregnant and had like hypertension. So they said, oh, have a couple cigarettes. Calm down. <laughs> there so you like, go. What? Oh, my God. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works, but what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help out. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try that in person. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. So, I mean, it's just a balance. You have to have a balance in life. You know, if you if you're doing too much water, you're going to die. You know, I mean. Yeah, that's it. Your water uh, poisoning. Yeah. Right, you can hyperventilate, you know, too much oxygen. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's true. You just got to, you know, it's just a balance of life. And, you know, I'm old now, I'm 52, so, you know, I've got to take care of myself. <laughs> hey, I'm not too far with you. I'm, I'm 48, so. Oh, well, you're still in your 40s. That's cool. Yeah, you know, <laughs> barely. Your 50s, your 50s, everything starts to hurt more. I mean, 40s <laughs> is when I lost my eyesight. I started needing glasses when I hit 40. Oh, man, I lost. 50, you know. I lost my eyesight. Yeah, <laughs> I lost my eyesight as a teenager, and then I ended up getting. Oh. I got LASIK though, and then after well, like I know, fifteen years, well, it I know goes what away. happened with the glass thing. I know why you got glasses. What's that? I mean, it's like that kid that was uh, caught masturbating. Um, <laughs> you know, his dad said to him, he said, "Look, you know, if you keep <laughs> masturbating." You're going to go blind. Right. And the kid goes, well, okay, I won't. And then the dad called him a second and a third time and just said, look, I've told you, son, if you keep masturbating, you're going to go blind. And the kid goes, oh, sorry, dad. I'm just going to do it till I need glasses. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't know if you could put that one in the podcast. Oh, but, you abs- know. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's going right up front. Okay. <laughs> I'm just watching Bob Saget's roast, so I'm going to calm myself down a little bit here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So, all right. So I've got so many questions for you. I know a lot of them you've probably answered before, so hopefully you know, it'll lead to some that maybe you don't get asked so often. We'll see. Hopefully. Okay. You started playing drums at an incredibly young age. There is a yeah. story that, that at the age of six, was it six that you were on the old gray seven, whistle test seven. with you? I think it was seven. Oh, seven. Okay. I think, I mean, I can't remember. I've been told, I mean, I can remember being there and I can remember getting on the kit and start playing. And I remember I was really small and the kit was really big and I couldn't reach the toms. So I tried to hit a few toms and I just like, the roadie, this guy, Phil, uh, my dad's roadie at the time, said, go play the drums, you know, have fun with the drums. And I, so I went up there and started bashing away and, and, I just remember a whole bunch of people came in and the cameras all went on. I thought it was my dad warming up. <laughs> uh, and I just got off the kit and ran. Oh, wow. As far as I can remember. But someone's told me that there, there is a, a video of it because they had cameras there, but oh, I've never wow. seen the video. So I'm not sure if that's real or not. I've never been able to find it. Yeah. Um, so it might just be some film guy, you know, got it in his private collection or something, you know? Oh, Wow. My dad was like, you know, obviously being the only son, I, he bought me this, you know, kid's drum kit when I was, you know, three years old, you know, and it was all paper heads and everything. And I yeah. smashed the hell out of it. It, <laughs> it lasted a week, you know. So um, so my dad figured, okay, I'm going to teach him some rudiments and teach him, you know, the real shit. And so he taught me all the rudiments. You know, back in, in my day, there was 26 rudiments. Okay. But he made me learn them all right-handed, left-handed, and then all the variations of the rudiments. Oh, wow. Which if you're not a musician, you might not understand this, but if you're playing, say, in 16th notes, okay, that means there's 16 beats in a bar. That means there's a one E and a two. So there's four beats to a quarter note. So you can start your rudiment on the one, you can start on the one E, you can start on the one and you can start on the earth one. So you can start, start it in four different places. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, you know, every, every rudiment, you know, there's four different ways of playing it if it's in 16th notes, which is a lot of the rudiments. So that makes a 26, like, you know, 2000. And then you can play every triplet rudiment in 16th notes, every 16th rudiment triplets. And that makes, you know, multiple ridiculous amounts. Right. And you can, you know, the rudiments are very important. And my dad made sure that I had an understanding of the rudiments before I was allowed to even get on a drum kit. Oh, wow. And I was talking to my girlfriend the other day and I was like, you know what? My dad never gave me a drum kit. The only drum kit he ever bought me was the one when I was three that I smashed. <laughs> I mean, the only reason I had drums when I was growing up is because my dad went single kick drum for a while. Okay. After after the um, Air Force and stuff like that, he dropped a kick drum for some oh, reason. I don't okay. know why, because I think he got heavily into jazz. But so there was a kick drum, his spare kick drum, or the other kick drum is in the house, and his leady snare drum, which was his snare drum used through cream. Okay. The, the snare drum he played for all cream it was Leedy before it became Ludwig. It's it's oh, a really old one. Okay. So um, I had that snare drum. I had his kick drum. I had to find an old hi hat. I found two old cymbals and two old cymbal stairs, and that's all I had. 
and I had those African drums all over the house. So I put the African drums beside the kit and I used those as toms. Oh, wow. And that was my kit for pretty much until I was 14, 13 or 14, when my dad left me the whole, what was it, uh, Perspex kit that he had. I was oh. using it in the 70s. He, yeah. he left that because he, he got another kit or something. And somehow I managed to get hold of that kit. And um, that was my first ever drum kit. But I was like 13 or 14 before I actually got a real full drum kit. Everything else wow. was just, you know, kick, snare, hat, and a couple of cymbals. And he even took that snare drum away from me because oh. he found out one time. I go, I go, yeah, I'm using that black snare. He goes, the black one, the leading? I go, yeah. And he goes, you can't have that. You're too young to have that. I go, what do you mean? It's my only snare drum. He goes, look, I'll give you my snare drum I'm playing right now. It's this red and orange uh, Perspex one. It's the spare snare to his Perspex kit, but he was using that all the time because it sounded better for some reason. He goes, look, I'll give you this because he had it on hand. If you can give me the black leady one back. So, you know, of course, I went home, and the next time I saw my dad, I gave him the black leady snare drum back, and he gave me this Perspex one, and he said, you can have the leady drum back when you're, you know, old enough or when I'm dead. Wow. And unfortunately, now my dad's dead, I would love to have that snare drum, but unfortunately, his wife took everything. So she won't. She even, I even put a message on Facebook that she sent me saying, "You, you know, deep down, your dad never loved you, and I will never give you anything of his. You will not get a dime of his. I take it all. Oh, my God. So I was like, God. Nice. Very nice person. Holy crap. You know, and that's why the last 10 years, that's why I did that Rolling Stone interview saying my dad's dead to me. Yeah. Because the last 10 years of my relationship with my dad, he hated me. And I was like, why? And it's because his wife was telling him the whole time that I hated him. That's unbelievable. Because she, you know, she married him for the money and she, she turned him, him against his entire family. I mean, that's- even in the funeral... The, my dad's funeral, the only person that went to the funeral was his wife because she banned everybody else, even his sister, my oh dad's my. sister. That's so, insane. You know, yeah, but there you go. She wanted everything. Wow. She wanted, she called up, you know, Clapton and all the people and tried to get them all to go there, and they're like, who is this? Right. You yeah. know, and I said to I said to Kutsi when my dad died, I said, look, you need to give me his book, his Rolodex with all, you know, Mick Jagger's number, you know, Ronnie Wood, Eric's, Stevie's, you know, everybody's number. I said, you need to give that to me so I can keep it safe or maybe even destroy it because that should not get into hands of anybody, especially an agent. Right, right. She's like, well, I'm going to give it to Ina, Ginger's agent. I'm like, no, that's not, my dad would never give his personal phone numbers to an agent. I don't trust agents. Yeah. Nina's an agent. The next thing I get from his wife is, if you don't trust Asians, I'm black. You must be what? racist. <laughs> Asians? Like, what? What? <laughs> what? So, oh my you know, God. obviously, talking to her is, uh, is, is impossible. She, I mean, I don't know if she understands English or she just is really not bright, but yeah. I mean... You know, I mean, she's, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just wish that she would be nice to us and, and at least give me my dad's drums so I could at least get those, you know, and, and yeah. put that snare drum in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, and at least maybe get my dad's hi-hats because I've got the set of hi-hats that my dad gave me when I was 10. Oh, wow. I still have them. Wow. Um, so, you know, those are the only things my dad, he gave me the hi-hats. There was two broken cymbals and I had this, no, sorry, it was a hi-hat and a, 
nice crash and a China boy. And he took the China boy in the crash back and gave me two broken symbols. So I had some broken symbols. But, you know, that was the thing. It was like, Dad, you know, now my dad's dead. I would like to get those symbols that I grew up with back, you know, just the things just like that yeah. I grew up with. I first started to play, you know, the snare drum, the China boy, just those things would mean so much to me. I would take the snare drum to the Rock and Hall of Fame and put that in there so everybody could see it. And I know it would be looked after. And, you know, when yeah. I die, at least it's in the right place, you know. Yeah. What's she going to do with it? What, what, what she's going to sell it to, to a, she's going to sell it to a private bidder probably. Uh, you know? man. I mean, I want to get the word out there. Whoever buys it, can they please donate it to the Rock and Hall of Fame? Cause that's where it should be. Yeah. But you know, I don't, I don't know who's going to buy it. I mean, whoever buys it is probably going to just want to keep it in their closet, you know, or keep it in their little house for, for themselves. But maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe somebody, maybe, will, maybe somebody will be a good Samaritan and, and do the right thing and yeah. get it where it belongs. I hope so. I mean, I really hope that's what happens in the end. I mean, uh, it's just, it's, it's the rightful place for it to be, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I put the spare snare drum, the one that he, my dad played that gave to me, I took that to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that's in there. Oh, good. Um, you know, I at least got something of my dad's in there, you know? So that's in there, but I would like that, you know, I think the one from Cream would be more, just more relevant to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, oh, I think. absolutely. You know, even though that snare drum he played through the 70s and it was his drum and he did play it, but, I think the cream era is what my dad's most well known for. So yeah, for sure. You know, be the drum that should actually be there, but you know, we'll see. Time will tell. It seems to me that that being Ginger Baker's son really didn't help you much growing up. Well, because my dad was never a kid person for one. Okay. He didn't, you know. I mean, he didn't understand you know kids. He didn't like kids. You know. I mean, I, I, you know, I when I was a kid, I was like. There's a donkey, and I got smacked. That's not a donkey. That's a horse. You know, I mean, oh, you couldn't like, you know, wow. you could, you know. I my girlfriend's got a kid, and I I have no understanding of because I I grew up with no childhood. You know, I mean, yeah, um, I wasn't allowed to have be a kid. I had to be, you know, I had to say the right things. I mean, my dad gave me a joint when I was five, oh and God. I blew the end out and got smacked. No, you don't smoke a joint like that. You know, it's like, oh my God. You know, cocaine when I was 15, but that's because I got really sick oh and we had to do a drum duet. And I, the day of the drum duet, I'm sitting there in a chair going, Dad, I'm throwing up. I've got a headache. I can't move. And it's like, I can fix that. Oh, and tops a line of cocaine. Of course, my dad had the best cocaine, so it wasn't no crap cocaine. Right. This is good shit. <laughs> so um, they gave me the big biro pen with the, the P. You know, I don't know if you Americans know what a big biro pen is. You probably no. We had these these see through pens, big biro pens, and you could you could just take the filament out the middle and you just pop the end off, and you've got a, a snorting straw. Oh, okay, I know what you're okay. talking about. Yeah, snorting straw. So my first line <laughs> of cocaine was for a big biro pen, and I didn't even get the whole line up my nose because he chopped out a pretty big line, and I'm 15 years old, and I was yeah, as much as I can up there, yeah. you know. And I was like, whoa, you know. I mean, I'm 15 great. years old. 15 on the first line of cocaine. I was at the gig and played it and was home before they even left. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. That was like, I don't even remember the gig. I just remember 
playing my ass off and sweating so hard that I remember the next day I was cured. I mean, I I burnt through that flu or whatever I had in one day. Maybe, hey, so, maybe that's how we get rid of the COVID. Yeah, let's get everybody on cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> Screw this fucking masks and vaccination. Yeah. Just set someone up with a line of coke. <laughs> I think we've come up with the cure. All right. I've heard a, a couple of things. I've been trying to do some as much research as I can. One of the funniest things I heard was that I thought being so young, maybe your first one of your first memories was the old gray whistle test with your dad. But I did hear you say that it was actually getting lost in Eric Clapton's garden. Yeah. And I really want to uh, go back to Eric's house if I could get him to let me into his garden, because I, I'm sure it's the size of the poster stamp. Right. I, I know. I know it's pretty small. I've heard it's pretty small. And I, I was talking to my sister about this, and it's like it's weird. Like my earliest memory is, but your earliest memories are when you're panicked. I was panicked. I was like, I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't. I was. I must have been three or four. I don't even know how old I was, but I was very young. Obviously, old enough to stand up and walk around. But I remember getting lost, and I remember his dog coming. I remember some kind of like a, a uh, an archway with stuff on it. And uh, I think it was just like one of those archways that vines grow on, you know, so oh, it's like a yeah. lettuce, you know, lattice work or whatever archway. And I seem to remember that. And I remember the dog coming through and getting me. And then I remember one of my sisters finding me and brought me in. And that's why it was such a clear memory, because I was I was scared. I was yeah. like, oh, no, I'm lost. I'm like, what's going to happen? That's... And that's my earliest memory, you know. And I remember a lot of weird things from back then. I remember... I mean, we're talking England, so it's cold, you know, in the mm -hmm. winter. And I remember being at someone's house, it was either Eric's or Robert Stigwood's or someone famous house, because they had this great big balloon in the back garden that was a swimming pool. And it was a great big, like, dome that was filled with hot air. And that's oh. why it was up. And there was a, you unzipped it and you walked in and it was, there was a slide and there was just drugs going on oh. and there was like <laughs> naked people. And it was just like, it was just like unbelievable. And I was just like, whoa. And I was kicked out, obviously, because right. that was not the place. I mean, I thought that's where I should be in a swimming pool with the slide. Yeah. But, you know, no, that was the grown ups with their drugs and having fun. Yeah, you anyway. weren't quite, you weren't 15 yet, so you weren't allowed in. No, so yeah. <laughs> so uh, just, you know, memories of being around the famous people and they're absolutely outrageously lavish things, or whatever the word is, you know, just yeah. real nice stuff that you just don't see people having, you know, normally. Right. You know, like I thought it was normal for your walls to be, every wall in your house to be a different color and gold discs. I thought gold and platinum discs was a normal thing that people had on their walls. Wow. You know, and me and my sister used to look at those records and go, hang on a minute. There's four tracks on this album, but the label says five. That's not the right album for the label. <laughs> and it's like, what do they do? They just pick up any album, spray it gold and stick the label on it? I mean, it's not even the right album. <laughs> I never I thought about that. Yeah, I wonder what happened you took one of those gold records and actually played <laughs> them. I wonder what music would be on them. <laughs> oh, whatever was just laying around, I guess. That is awesome. I never realized that. I never thought about that. I don't have too many of my own, so... Right. Well, they might have changed that nowadays. I don't know, but I mean, I don't know. How, know. I mean, how do you uh, how do you mount you know a platinum download? Yeah, right. I, yeah. I don't know. Well, they had, when I was growing up, they had platinum tapes, didn't they? And yeah. Shit, you know, 
old tapes and stuff. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it gets smaller and smaller as the, as the years yeah. go by. And then, and then CDs came out, indestructible. These things will never break. They're crap. They skip. They're like useless. After two years, three years, they're done. <laughs> you know, they're finding out now that tapes are the best thing to preserve your music one on. Oh, really? Hard drives. You know, we don't know how long hard drives are going to last, last but yeah. after 10 years, you want to back up your hard drive because apparently after 10 years, they start going, start losing stuff. I hate, so, you know, having just downloaded stuff. I, oh, it dri- yeah. drives me up the wall. Well, you know what the best thing for preserving literal work, I mean, writing and stuff is, the best way to preserve it forever? What's that? Stone. Wow. Yeah, you went back farther than I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Stone, and then next next to stone would be paper. Yeah. Then all this stuff we got today doesn't last anywhere near as long as a stone tablet. That's true. (laughs) Look how many things we find in caves. Right, well, exactly. You see, that's the thing. I mean, we had techno- better technology back then, you know? Yeah. We're writing it in stone. Well, what was it? There was 15, 15 commandments, wasn't there? But he dropped dropped yeah. one of the tablets. <laughs> yeah. That's a Monty Python Mel sketch. Brooks or something. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> you had some rough times growing up. And, and, you know, it was just kind of amazing to me to find out. You know, you think... Well, I mean, see, for me, it wasn't rough because... I didn't know any different. So, I mean, I mean, being evicted from my house was kind of like, it was kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, the first time it was, it was kind of, it was kind of exciting, you know? Um, wow. And I, you know, I was kind of smart. I was a real smart kid. I mean, I was like, you know, I worked in a radio control car store when I was like 12, 13, 14, repairing their cars. Oh, wow. You know, I was always knew how to fix stuff and I was always building things and, fixing stuff. I mean, maybe because I had to build my first kit and I don't know. I was always building stuff. It runs in my family. My dad's a builder. I mean, if you see the stuff my dad's built, it's insane. Wow. The house in Colorado that he put the roof on himself. He built the porch. He put the gate up, you know, oh my built God. the stables, everything. I mean, he built all that himself and it's still there. Wow. But so, you know, I was a smart kid. So I, I just made it work. And it, for me, it was like, you know, when we got evicted, I thought, okay, hang on a minute. We're getting evicted. We've got double glazing. I don't know if you know what double glazing is. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, in, the, in the old houses in England, you had a window that was the old lattice work window that had a handle, you know, closed it. And then you had double glazing on the inside to insulate it. Right. So what I did was I, I opened the double glazing. I put the handle so it looked like it was closed, but it wasn't closed. And I put the double glazing <laughs> down so it didn't click. So when we got evicted from my house and we're all sitting outside the house and they've locked it all up and the police leave and we're going, oh, shit. And my mum's going, oh, crap. I go, give me five minutes. And I climbed up the side of the house, climbed up the way I knew how to get into my bedroom and got into the window and let everybody in. And we squatted our own house for six months. That's incredible. Now, I don't know if you know Americans know about squatting. So, you know, squatting is when you, in London, you find a house that's derelict or abandoned. And you get into it. Now, if you break into it, you have to repair what you broke into because you want to make it look like you haven't, there's no one in there. Yeah. And then as soon as the police find out, you've got like three to six months before the police can actually get you out. So, you know, squatters rights, they called it. Yeah. So We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
It's similar here, and and it's funny because if you can, you can actually claim the house as your own if you've established residency there. Like you start getting your mail there, and stuff. It's it's insane. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know in renting, I I rented out a warehouse, co-rent, had a warehouse. I was renting. I sublet half of the warehouse out, and that was hell because you know I had people that said, "I'm not paying you." Well, take your stuff out. You touch my stuff, and I'll have the cops arrest you. So it's like, what am I supposed to do? You're screwed. You're going to have to go through the courts. It's going to take you six months to get me out. And you're going to have to pay a lot of money. So I had to make deals with these people. Okay, man, I'll give you free rent and I'll do this for you. Just can you, you know, I'm broke. Can you just send pity on me and leave? Give me, you know, leave in three months. And I had to do all kinds of, you know, give them my parking spot for their car. Oh, my God. For six months. So, you know, they, they would leave and all kinds of stuff. So I know that renting is kind of hard. I would never do it again. But um Right. God. But anyway, so squat is so we used to squat. So I didn't I was like I was 14 when we got evicted the second oh I was just turned 15 when we got evicted the second time. 14 the first time. The second time they came back. Now I'd gone to Italy to see my dad. My dad lived in Italy at the time. Okay. I'd gone to Italy and they came back, the bailiffs came back and they threw us out of the house, but this time they threw everything, all the contents of the house out of the windows onto the, and it was it was snow, it was winter. Oh and wow. my bedroom my bedroom was a floor on the second floor. So they threw my TV, they ripped all the posters off the wall, they just ripped them off and they scrunched crunched everything up on my TV. And they threw everything out of the window. So everything, all my stuff was smashed to pieces. So when I finally got back from Italy, I had nothing. I went to the warehouse where my mom had finally got a job and and you know, put all the stuff that she could in the warehouse and all my stuff was just toast. It was, you know, trash. Uh. So the only thing I had that was rescued was my drum kit. So uh, when I squatted, when I went on the streets, all I had, oh, my Atari. The only thing I had was my Atari survived and my drum kit. And then someone stole my Atari unit. So then I started tying my drums to me. So when I'd go to sleep, I'd tie all my drums to me. So if anybody tried to steal a drum, it'd wake me up. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know, but for me, it was kind of fun because I was 15 years old, just turned 15, had no school, no parents, you know, and I found this studio in, in Acton in London, and the guy was my dad's manager. I found out later he was ripping my dad off the whole time. Oh, geez. I thought he was such a nice guy for taking me in and let me stay in his studio. Wow, what a nice guy. But yes. he was ripping my dad off for thousands upon thousands of pounds at the oh. time. So now I don't feel so bad about yes. you know him me up. <laughs> oh, um, my gosh. And he's the guy that's got all my dad's gold discs. Oh. So he, he turned up at my mum's house when I was like 14, right before we got evicted, and just took all the gold discs and says your father's discs, you know, discs and they kind of go to the studio and he took them all. And my dad was like, well, I, you know, didn't, you know, let him do this. And apparently my dad wanted this back and he hid all the discs. So he's got, and his daughter's got them now. So I spoke to his daughter and they've got all of my dad's gold discs and all of his stuff and they will not give it to us. And they are holding it to, to sell them when they can find a place to sell them. Because oh. I, I don't know. I suppose they've got them. So it's funny. Like, it's insane. Throughout my entire dad's life, my entire dad's life, I've ended up with nothing. I mean, after he's died, his wife's taken everything, you know, all of the drums, everything. I've got nothing of my dad's anymore, and oh. I won't receive anything. I've been told to cut out the will and cut out everything, and I haven't seen anything, so I believe it. I even had oh. to try and 
get hold of the executives and, and send them an email and trying to say, look, you know, and I never got an email back from them. And then I think I did get one email back from them saying, well, the law says that if it's personal, if it's your personal stuff, it all goes to her. She gets everything. So I was that's, like, well, there you go. Oh, you know? God. That's, I and that's hate why the executives, that's why they never reached out. I was wondering why people were saying, yeah, the executives should reach out to you if you're in the will. And I was like, well, I would have thought I'd be in the will, but apparently not. And there was some article in the English paper saying that we were in the will, but um, apparently there's some clauses that make it so that when the money does come through, me and my sisters get a percentage, but it's so small it gets eaten up by the other bills that has to be paid. So, oh so apparently, you know, Kutsi ended up, she changed the will uh, like five years before my dad died and cut us all out of it. That's so. Uh, I, 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 uh, I don't even have words for that. I just, it seems to happen a lot, though, it seems. Really? It's not just, I mean, rich, you know, or famous people oh. end up, you know, really old and, and some young girl goes, yeah, hey, I'll be your lover if you give me everything. Yeah. You know, and they're like 80 years old or 70 years old. And they're like, well, yeah, what the hell? You know, I, I want, you know, I want to have sex with a young girl. So here, have everything. They give them everything. And then when they die, their family's like, what? There's a lot of those stories out in, I think it was Anna Nicole Smith had the same, did the same thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a prime example of it. You uh, know, the, the kids had to go to court and fight two for nail for just the dribbles. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the problem. I mean, in places like Holland, you're not allowed to do that. Your family by law, no matter what your will says, your family by law, get a, get a cut of your will. Oh, wow. If they're your family. So you can't cut your family, which I think is, should be the case. If you're going to have kids, I don't have any kids, but if you're going to have kids, you should want to help them out and you should want to at least help them out when you die, give them your stuff. I mean, And that was the problem with my dad. He didn't understand that kind of thing. So no one really knows I exist because my dad never said anything about me. That's I mean, crazy. I've seen interviews, constant interviews on my dad about drumming and everything. You know, you take someone like uh, Max Weinberg or, you know, who's the guy that's son, Wolfgang, who plays bass? Um, oh, Eddie Van Halen. Van Halen. So, you know, um, even, you know, like Zappa with Dweezil, you know, yeah. you know, the, all the parents normally help their kids out in the music. It's like if your dad was a glass blower, you'd go into the glass blowing business and your dad would teach you the secrets and you would take the business on and you would keep that going for the family tradition. So for me, playing drums was like, it was always, I always wanted to make my dad proud and I was yeah. always sitting there practicing and trying to, get all my dad's legs and play as good as I wanted to be better than my dad. So I wanted to prove to my dad that I could do it. And that was all what I always ever wanted for my dad was just for him to be proud of me. And I never got that. I never got that, that back from him until he died. The day he died, I went to see him in the hospital. And that was the one day that I was just like, I hadn't seen him for years and years. I mean, I see, I think saw him for one day in 2014, and I hadn't seen him for like five years before that. So it would be wow. like 10 years or something, you know? And I was like, I finally got to see him in the hospital and he, he had a second wind. It was right before, you know, he went down again. He was actually up and, and I got to talk to him and he actually laughed with me and smiled with me. And, and when I told him I was learning blue condition, he was like happy. And I was just like, 
I was just like, wow, finally, you know, yeah. my dad is acknowledging me and, and he's proud of the fact that I'm, I want to keep his, you know, legacy going. And yeah, and it was funny because Cooksy said to me, his dad's wife said to me in the hospital, said, you know, your dad want, would want you to have his drums and wants you to keep it going. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, you know, yeah. that's what I want to do for my dad. I want to keep my family legacy going as long as I can. That's why it was weird after he died that she completely changed. But, yeah. you know, I suppose there you go. So, you know, it was, it was such a shame because it was Sunday and I was like, or it was like, Tuesday, I think. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get to, I'm go, I mean, I'm on the road in London. So I saw okay. my dad for that, that one day. And then I went onto the road and I was up in Scotland and touring. And I was like, I'm not going to be back down to London for six days. So I'm going to come back and see you in six days. And then I'm, I'm going to move my plane ticket and I'm going to stay in London with you for as long as I can, you know, and be with you. And he died the Sunday and I was meant to go see him on the Monday. Uh, so he died the day before I went back to go see him. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Um, and apparently the whole time from, even from Kutsi saying, uh, yeah, your dad was calling for you the whole time. Goes, where's Kofi? Where's Kofi? Oh. And I was like, it's so ironic. Look, you know, my dad wasn't there for me when I needed him, and then I wasn't there for my dad at the end. Oh, you know? oh man! But, you know, there you go. It's you know, but now that's how it worked. I, I know he, he wasn't always terrible. Now he actually kidnapped you once, right? Right. Well, that was the thing. I mean, he did care. Yes. He just didn't know. <laughs> how to do it <laughs> so so what he did was it was insane it was like one day my dad picks me up from school and i'm like what's going on and it's like you know and then picks up my sister and me and my sister are in a car heading to my grandma's house on my dad's side okay uh, and we're like we don't have any clothes we don't have anything he goes i'll get you some clothes he bought us a set of clothes you know and and then just dropped us at my grandma's house and left and he was gone <laughs> oh and i was like I remember I um, I was really depressed and I didn't know what was going on. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to, I was outside the house. I didn't know where I was. And I just started walking down the street and I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to keep walking and just to see where I end up. I just wow. was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I am. And I kept walking and someone saw me walking down the street and pulled their car over and go, Oh, you, you Kofi and come and took me back. And I was like, Oh, well, and I was just, <laughs> I don't know what would have happened, but I wanted to just, I wanted to get away. All I know in my mind is I just want to get away from everything because my mom was nuts. What happened was there were social workers brought in, you know, with all the beatings and everything that was going on. And um, my mom was beating the shit out of us. And I'd get home and, and if I, it was just weird. I'd get in the car and there would be, my friends would be with me coming, you know, being picked up from school. And I go, mom, can you drop my friends to the station? It was on the way home. Sure, yeah, we all got in the car. We pulled up to the station. They all got out. As soon as that door closed, the next thing I know, my head's fucking hitting the dashboard, smashing into the dashboard. I'm like, what's going on? And she's driving the car into oncoming traffic. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's like nightmare. And then my sister's standing at the garage. When she pulls in, and she accelerates at my sister. My sister jumps out of the way. She hits the garage door and then drags me out of the car grabs my sister, punches my sister down to the ground and then grabs us, brings us into the house and just beats the shit out of us. I mean, I got beaten so bad that I was beaten and I was like next to this double freezer and we had these rabbits. And what I didn't know is the rabbits had chewed through the cable, the electrical cable, and the deck chair was wrapped around this cable and it's behind the 
freezer. And I remember I was just in the corner beside the freezer and I grabbed the deck chair that was behind the freezer. And the next thing I remember, I'm flying around the room. So, oh and then I remember, I remember, you know, it, it let go of me because it obviously, you know, let go. And I just remember crawling along the floor to the bal- to the stairway where there's a balcony and seeing it was almost like Star Wars. It was like, you know, my mom and my <laughs> sister just going at it, you know, punches and smacking oh each other against walls. Oh my and so, God. I mean, that was kind of, that was my life. So it was like, you know, and then my dad, you know, there were social workers brought in and social workers, I don't know what happened, but the social worker asked us, you know, do you love your dad? And I'm like, yeah, we love our dad. Yeah. So then the social worker would leave and my mom would come in and beat the crap out of us. You said you loved your dad, bash, bash, bash. You know, oh well, why would the social worker tell my mom? They, they've got to have some kind of, you know, understanding of what's going on. But, uh, yeah. You know. But, but it, I mean, it's just insane. I mean, what, what, I just don't understand how a parent would ex- expect them, a child to say that they didn't love the well, other parents. It, well, it gave me good timing because she used to beat me with a drumstick. Oh. You know, she had this big, big, like, military drumstick. Oh, my God. She used God. to beat me with that. So, I mean, I think that was good for me because it gave me a sense of time, <laughs> you know, being beaten, you know, like, okay, one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I mean, my dad wasn't much better. I mean, I saved, I mean, I've got, I'm, I'm going to write a book because I've got so much stories. I mean, yeah. my dad, my dad, I went to Italy the time I'm telling you about when we got evicted and I, I saved up, I was 14 year old, 14 years old working in a nightclub, collecting glasses and washing the glasses to make money to buy enough drumsticks. So when I went to Italy, I'd have a whole bag of drumsticks to go there. Okay. So I, I saved up the money, bought the drumsticks, turned up to Italy and my dad looked at my drumsticks. There were two S's. If you know anything about drumming, two S's are huge. They're like military sticks. Oh, okay. Well, my dad used seven A's, which are like tiny like matchsticks. <laughs> anyway, so my dad picked up all my drumsticks and goes, fucking navy poles, and threw them in the stufa. A stufa is a Italian cooking fire. Oh, wow. So so he burnt all my sticks in front of me and gave me a pair of these seven A's. And I'm like, I I busted my ass to buy those sticks. Oh. You know, that was that was like two or three weeks of Busting my ass collecting glasses in a <sighs> in a nightclub that I shouldn't have been in because I was fourteen. Right. You know, but I, I somehow convinced them because I was on the streets. I convinced them that, you know, please just give me a job. And, you know, I was like oh. it was hilarious because they used to have riots in this club and the glasses were all plastic. And they used to throw them and smash them. And I was going around like a little 14-year-old kid grabbing all these glasses for people so they wouldn't smash them with these great, great big towering stacks of glasses going around in the middle of the riot, getting all okay. the glasses off the floor. Oh, my you know, God. Pick it up. I mean, when I did a job, I did it as best. I put 100% into it, no matter what the job was. You know, because I've had a lot of day job stuff around, you know, my music because I've been broke all the time. You know, I've done, you know, put fence posts in. And, yeah. you know, when people employ me, they're like, wow, because I work my ass off. When I do a job, I do it. I, I put 100% in. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, no, I, I really took that job and really did a good job on it. And and, and I couldn't believe that my dad burnt all my sticks. Oh. But there you go, whatever. I am amazed that you're such a well-adjusted, happy person. Oh, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> you come across as one. 
<laughs> Ask my girlfriend and her kid about me. I'm I'm a mess. I mean, I, I you know I I'm okay, but I'm I have no idea about kids, and I have no idea how to be around kids. I have no concept of, of how a kid has food cooked for them and has stuff given to them. And you know, I was cooking my own food from age ten. Yeah, you, you know? barely had that when you were a kid. So yeah, so that's what I I have no understanding of that kind of stuff. You know. But, you know, I, I, I think a pot has a lot to do with being happy for me. You know, I'm a pothead and, and I, I eat it. I don't smoke it, but I kind of need it. It, it centers me. You okay. know, if I'm driving my car and I'm straight, I'm, I'm from Europe. So we use our turn signals and we, you know, we let people in and we drive courteously. Yeah. And I'm driving in America and I'm like, really? Why are you not using? Why do you cut me off without using your turn signals? Why are you like racing up behind me? You know, and then cutting me off to get to a red light, and then why? Why is this? To get but one car like the head of you. Yeah, when I'm stoned, I'm like, go ahead. Yeah, you know, don't you don't have to use your turn signal. Do whatever, whatever. you want to do. I don't care. <laughs> you know, you can cut me off. You know, I'll back off. I'll let you. You know, push me back. Push me back. I don't care. But it, the driving out here is is very exciting. Oh, it's because it's like <laughs> it's like it's in England in Europe. I mean, in Europe, you have an autobahn with no speed limit because you have a rule, and that slower traffic keep right. Mm -hmm. But you don't have any signs. There's not one sign saying slower traffic keep right, except for all the traffic's in the right lane, and they're only going to the left to pass, and they're going to the far left to pass someone passing, and then they all pack in, back into the right. Yeah. Now, you go to America, and there's signs, slower traffic keep right, slower traffic keep right, but you're passing on the right because that's the fastest lane in yeah. America. Everybody gets on the freeway, hits the left lane, and cruises. Everything just go you know, wherever they want. want. Fast, if you want to go fast, get in that right lane and pass everybody. Yeah. So in America, you've got you got cars coming from both sides into one middle lane. You got them from the left and the right, and you've got them not using their turn signals. So, I mean, I've got I got a camera in my car, and I got videos of people car accidents, people uh -huh. rolling their cars in front of me, and I'm just like, I mean, I never saw this until I came to America. <laughs> It's a I crazy mean, place, you man. Just it is. It's exciting. I like the driving here because it's not like England where you can predict what everybody's going to do on the road. <laughs> Out here, you have excitement. You have like, you know, you have like, whoa, what's that car going to do? Is he going to go left or right? He's at a stop sign. I mean, I, I'm stupid. I bought a house right next to a stop sign on the corner. Oh. So when I eat my breakfast, all I can see is cars not using a turn signal running stop signs. <laughs> I see two accidents outside my house. Two. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, even I even told this woman, I said, if you keep running through driving down, you see in California, where I, I grew up most of my adult life, you can't go down an alleyway to cut off between streets. It's illegal. You okay. can't cut through. In Indiana, an alleyway is a street. I even asked the cops, what's the name of this alleyway? Well, there's no name, but it's a street. <laughs> You're allowed to do whatever you want, you know. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I live on this alleyway and I'm, I'm the only driveway that backs onto this alleyway. All my oh. other neighbors that don't have an alleyway. So I'm the only one that needs this little short part of the alleyway. And this idiot neighbor of mine got pissed off with me and started rotating around my house, around and revving his car in front of my house and oh. stuff. So I was like, okay, idiot, you know, I'll just park my car in the middle of the driveway, in the middle of the alleyway, because it's not blocking anyway. Yeah. So he calls the cops on me, you know, and I cops tell me I have to move my car. I'm like, who am I blocking? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not fucking anybody. I'm the only driveway that enters onto this short piece of alleyway between these two streets. I'm not causing any problem. 
well, this is a street. You can't park a car there. So I'm like, uh, okay. Oh, so uh, he won. Yeah. He's allowed to pass my house as much as he wants, revving his car. So I got, I've, I've got so many questions still for you. I got to, okay. I want to know a little bit more about how you got into being a professional drummer in the first place. You, you're homeless. You're 14, 15 years old, tying your drums. That's what to your I was body. doing. I was playing with um, Kessel Smith, John Etheridge. Yeah. Uh, they were all jazzers. Uh, Randy California. Yep. Um, Steve Waller. You know, um, I was playing with all these people when I was 14 because that was how I was making my money. That's what wow. I was getting my money from. I was playing pubs. And again, the, you know, that they used to say that it was a midget on drums because I wasn't allowed in the club or the bar. And they used to say, isn't he a kid? And they go, no, he's just a midget. And they put me behind, <laughs> kind of, you know, put me behind the drums and, you know, not let me you know, mingle with people right. because I was 14, 15 years old playing these, these bars, oh, you know, God. for my money. I mean, when the people, I can't remember what they called the people, are, you know, school people, you're not going to school, you know, they, they track you down. They're they go, truant Look. officers. Right. You, you, you got to go into a home. You got to be taken care of. Yeah. And I'd be like, you know, they found me somehow. I don't know how they found me. And um, I said, look, you know, no, I I'm fine. Just leave me alone. I'm, I've got money coming in. I've got a place to stay. I'm living in this studio. I mean, I lived on the drum riser. I used to sleep on the drum riser. And, oh. you know, then I wake up. I used to eat my breakfast on my snare drum and practice all, until the band came in. And then my job was to set the band up, put the mics up, make sure the PA worked, make sure the band was good. Then when the band left, I put my kit back up from the corner and set it and play it for a few hours until the next band came in. And when the band left for the night, I play all night. So I was happy camper. Yeah. You know, I was like, all I had was my drums and that was it. I mean, I had no parents to tell me what to do. So I was a bit of a mess. You know, I was obviously didn't really understand stuff. I lived in a studio where they dealt drugs and had music. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I was in, I was heading out the studio one day. This is my dad's studio we built with some of his cream money. Anyway, I was heading out this little door in his big doors and there's a little door that you get through the, to get out and I opened the door and a whole bunch of cops pushed me against the wall and like there was a stairway and it's it was like a Monty Python sketch. There were so many cops entering the building and they all bunched up against each other and couldn't get in. Oh <laughs> there were so many, it was a small place. And you know, they bust obviously busting the place. We got 15-year-old kid, you know, I got strip search and everything. Oh Luckily I didn't have anything on me. I was lucky for some reason. Wow. Um, but remember after all the police left, the, the guy, the, the studio guy goes, okay, they left. Go, yeah. And so he pulls out his blunt of hash that he's stashed, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, great, Roy. Roy, you got some hash, great. Back you know? in business. Yeah, so um, it was just, uh, you know, it was just, it was fun. I mean, I had a good time. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad time for me. I had a yeah. good time. So, you know, how did you start? What was the question? I forgot what the question was. How well, did I start? How did you start uh, recording with bands at the now? I mean, that was, is that your first recording credit? Well, my first recording credit was when I was 14 and I did this album, a single called, um, what was it called? I can't believe we're on the eve of destruction was a song that was a cover. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, Eva destruction. Yeah. And so I, I recorded this single when I was 14 and that was my first recording. Oh, thing wow. um and then from then on it was like you know like i said dick Essel smith john etheridge i joined steve marriott's band when i was 18 yeah you know so i was playing, i was playing in clubs i was playing in clubs for my living from 14 and i was playing in clubs and i was 18 still playing and i was playing in cover bands and somehow 
Steve Maddox's manager happened to walk in the club when their drummer had just left. And he goes, who's this guy? He's really fucking good. And they said, this is Kofi, Ginger Baker's guy. It's Ginger Baker's son. He goes, I've got to get this guy to Steve. And he introduced me to Steve Marriott. And Steve was really funny because I was young. And he was hiding all the pot and hiding everything. And I was like, no, man, I love pot. And Steve was like, oh, great. You know, pulled out his big joint because Steve was a, you know, loved, loved his joints. Um, and so, um, you know, I hit it off with him and I ended up in his band. And we had such a great time. And he was like my dad to me. And he was like, he was so good to me. He taught me all my professionalism on stage. Oh, and- wow. you know and how to play and how to attitude to have you know and, you know like one of the best things he taught me was when you're on stage you've got to put good vibes out to everybody so if you're having a hard time you're having a bad day or you're not feeling it you've got to smile and not let anybody else know on stage that you're having a bad day and if, if you you know if you, your bass drum pedal falls off or something play on the floor tom don't let everybody even know you've lost your kick drum you know oh, wow. professionalism is, yeah. is making the show Making everybody else on stage not knowing that you've broken a stick and you've dropped a stick or you, you've drum heads broken or, you know, or you've broken a string or something like that. You break a string, just carry on playing like yeah. nothing's happened. That was all the stuff he taught me, which was all came from Steve was, you know, I mean, that's the, the sad thing. My dad could have taught me all this stuff, but I yeah. had to learn it from everybody else I worked with. You know, I mean, I had to learn a lot of my dad's drumming from listening to CDs and stuff. Wow. I mean, some of my dad's best drumming is Air Force. Yeah. You know, that's his best work, I think. Cream, he was he was peaking. Blind Faith, he was getting near his peak. And Air Force, he was at his peak. Yeah. You know, oh, was, sure. that was when he was playing the best shit. And that's what I listened to. And I listened to his drum fills and I listened to his playing. I think, man, dad, why, why did you, you know, why wouldn't you... Why did I have to work so hard to get lessons from you? You know, why did you not teach me a lot of this stuff? You know, I mean, okay, he taught me pretty much everything, but he didn't teach me how he applied it. You know, he would teach right. me triplets, he would teach me the rudiments, he would teach me everything that he learned, but he didn't really teach me his, well, he did teach me how he applied it, but he didn't teach me everything. And I wanted, you know, there was some fills that I heard later in my life, it was like, you never showed me that. Yeah. And you never showed me that. I mean, I know what you're doing because it's an offshoot of this, what you taught me, and I can see what you're doing, but you never taught me that way of doing it and putting it in that way and doing that. And I was like, man, I mean, you know, that's one of my things I wish I, my dad had done with me. I wish he'd taken me under his wing like Steve did. And like yeah. a lot of people in my life have done, you know, professional musicians that have really helped me out. I mean, Steve Marriott was really, he taught me all of my professional stage, everything you know on stage. Oh, I mean, I was man. Steve for quite a while. I was with him for like a year. And I taught, you know, Europe and everything with him. And um, he just went off and did an album with Peter Frampton and went to America to do an album with Peter Frampton. And I went to America to do a solo project with Malcolm, Jack Bruce's son. And, yeah, yeah. Um, was that Lost City? And, uh, when I, yeah, it was Lost City, exactly. Okay. 
got back from doing that Lost City album. Oh, actually, it was before Lost City. It was right before Lost City. It was when me and Malcolm, first a guy called Mac Folk, put us together, and it was right before Scotty Brothers Records signed us, which was okay. Lost City. Okay. So it was the first time I went to America, and I just finished playing with Steve, and I said, Steve, I love playing with you, but I want to do original music. I want to go do my own career. And um, I went and did that, and then Steve did this album in with Peter Frampton, and he tried to get me on it, and Peter called me up and said, yeah, I want you to do it and send me some of your stuff. And I sent him a bunch of my jazz stuff. And Pete was like, well, are you a jazz player? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And to this day, Peter Frampton, last time I spoke to him, said, yeah, it was great jamming with you. And I was like, did we jam together? I don't remember jamming together. I thought I didn't play with you, but I may, maybe I did. I don't maybe. know. Maybe it's one of the people who got up on stage with Steve, you know, yeah, that were playing with Steve. But, but you know, so... So then I, you know, I got back to, uh, Steve got back to America and he called me up and said, look, I'm putting the band back together. You want to be in it? And I said, sure. I just done this American thing with my own thing. It didn't work out too well. <laughs> I'm broke as hell. My van's breaking down, you know, my van's on its last legs. I need some money. Put me on the gigs. He's like, you're on. Oh, so wow. he flew back Friday night and uh, Tony and his wife, they, they, had a rented car and I got to the place where his car was and it was a friend's house. And uh, Steve said, I'm going on to my, uh, my bungalow. And Tony was like, I'm too tired. I'm staying here. So Steve went on by himself because he wanted to sleep in his bed and he didn't have any roll-ups. Steve always used to smoke roll-ups and roll-ups go out when you drop them. Okay. He had a cigarette and he was smoking a cigarette and he fell asleep like he always did. And Tony wasn't there to put it out. And it was a cigarette and it caught fire to his chair and in his house, wow. there was two doors. One was his closet, one was the door out. And unfortunately, it was an old bungalow house. It was an old cottage house, and the floor lent to the left. And his closet was the left, and the right was the door out. And they found him in his closet. Oh. So, you know, smoking laces. So he obviously woke up in the smoke and got to the door, opened the door, and collapsed in the closet. And that's where he was found. Wow. Um, and... He brought back um, a pair of purple Converse because I had purple hair. So I used to, he used to call me Purple Baker. My dad was Ginger Baker, he had red hair. <laughs> I was called Purple Baker, I had purple hair. Okay. So he bought me a pair of purple Converse shoes from America that survived the fire because Tony had them. I think she had them and they gave them to me. And I was like, wow. I kept them in a, in a, you know, kept them in a drawer. Unfortunately, when my mum died, my sister cleaned out the house and I don't know what happened because oh. those bands, along with my dad's rice cymbal that he played through cream, the original rice cymbal, we played all through cream, all through blind faith. Wow. Oh, I think it cracked at the end of cream. It cracked at the end of cream. So it's through all of the most best cream stuff was his, that rice cymbal. When he left at the house and I use it as a practice symbol because it's cracked. Yeah. But it was a Kilton Zildjian. It was made in Turkey. It would be worth a fortune even just being cracked and being a Turkish-made Kildjian Zildjian symbol, not even the fact that it was cream and my dad's. Wow. That ended up in a landfill somewhere. Oh. I don't know what happened to it. Because my mum's house was cleaned out, and my sister didn't know what this stuff was. And yeah. We don't know if people came in there and stole stuff. We think they did. We don't know. But all of the stuff oh. went missing. All the stuff that meant anything to me went missing. So, oh, God, this is heartbreaking. You know, lost all that. So uh, there you go. Well, one of the first times I remember... He hearing you i mean you've played you've played in some incredible bands like mojo jonas hellboy okay, with yeah. with sean lane and that right that album i was is, young that i was album, 25 
Oh, the abstract logic is incredible. I mean, Rights with the Angels is, is just a magical song. That was a single kick drum too. I was single kick drum. I didn't play double that time. They wow. didn't have double pedals out, and I dabbled with double kick drums, but I never. My dad always said, "I, I don't want to see you playing double kick drums if you mastered one." And I never felt that you could master one. I felt it was too much to learn. <laughs> so all that abstract logic and all that stuff was all single kick drum until like 27, 28. I got a double pedal, and then I started playing double. Ki- I played double kick drums. I think a little bit in Lost City. I think it was double kick drums in Lost City, but I, I went back to the single kick drum. So the abstract logic was all single kick. Because wow. my dad, all my dad's double kick drum work, and this is why I was speaking to a drummer the other day about this. My dad led with his left foot because of the hi-hat jazz drummers. Now, if you're okay. not a musician, you won't know this, but you know, jazz is all about the left foot. It's okay. basically like this. If you learn to drive an automatic car and you've been driving that automatic car for 10 years and then someone puts you in a stick shift, you can't drive that car. No. Same thing with, with drums. You know, if you've been learning to play drums without that hi-hat, you're playing rock and that left foot's just sitting there on the hi-hat. And you've, yeah. you've learned how to play all these beats and all these fills. And then someone comes, well, let's get that left foot in there. You're like, Whoa. now you can't play any of the beats you've played. Yeah. Because now all, the, all the students I had that have been playing drums five or 10 years, I couldn't teach them all the left foot technique that my dad used because it was too hard for them because they, uh, it was, they couldn't even play a rock beat with the left foot in there. Uh, and it was like, wow. now if you'd learn to play the left foot, because I got a book out called The Forgotten Foot. Now, right. any drummer's got to buy this book. It's on Amazon. It's called Forgotten Foot because it teaches you how the left foot becomes so much more useful because if you learn it with the hi-hat on eighth notes, quarter notes, upbeats, all you do is you put that foot from the hi-hat to the left foot pedal on the bass drum. And you have all that technique. And that's what all of those songs that were all those double bass drum songs that my dad did. Yeah. He led with his left foot. His left foot went from the hi-hat to the kick drum and his right foot played around his left foot, playing the downbeats. Oh, wow. And that was all, that was his secrets to all his beats. So, you know, when I was later on teaching this stuff, I was couldn't believe the only students I could really get to learn this was the ones from the beginning, all the ones that were good enough drummers that had learned the left foot from the beginning. All the ones that were learned rock players, you know, they their left foot did nothing and they couldn't <laughs> learn it. So it was like, you know, taking those people from the, from the automatic and putting them in a stick shift. And they're yeah. like, this is too difficult. Give me my automatic back, you know? <laughs> so I, I say if you're a drummer, buy that book. It's on Amazon, Forgotten Foot, yeah. uh, Hal Leonard. And that, that's, uh, you know, it will really help you out for double bass drum technique because it's just so much easier in every way when you're, you're using your left foot leading on the on the downbeat oh yeah and then i mean the music that you were doing at that time i mean so we mentioned mojo and, and oh this riddle house but oh yeah the first thing that i remember seeing you as a part of was chris poland's band ohm Oh yeah, and I love. Well, I, mean, I was a huge Chris Poland fan from the Megadeth days, and when right. he, when I found out he was doing Ohm, 
brought up all that stuff. And um, so you ended up on the Amino Acid Flashback album and um, well, Circus. You know the Amino Acid Flashback? You know where that comes from? Where's that? Well, I was drinking Amino Acid a lot my working out days so i was like training and stuff and i was always used to carry some amino acid with me and swig it okay. and chris is amino acid and it was like you know i have a flashback so and i was like yeah we should call i think i said we should call about amino acid he's go i got a flashback with that and so we're amino acid flashback and that's how that's how that title came to be and i co-wrote that entire album time signatures all that weird stuff chris would come out of a riff and go what, what's this time is this in and i go oh it's a seven and i go <laughs> and i go we can we can poly rhythm into that from that idea into that idea and we can put this together and then wow you know when that album came out it's written by chris Poland ohm and i get no royalties and i was like you oh uh, damn you it know, but anyway there you go. i mean the dramas we don't get shit look at my dad he didn't yeah. get he didn't get writing uh, credits for White Room, the, the Five Four Blower, which was my dad. Yeah. He didn't get credits for the the beat that made Sunshine in Your Love. That song is made like Stuart Copeland. You could take Stuart Copeland off police stuff, and it wouldn't be the same. Oh no! Police, Stuart Copeland made the police what they were, and Stuart Copeland gets no writing royalties for that shit. That's such a shame, man. You know, so it's like you know, except for now, the Chili Peppers, and and Queen. Queen, they split it all equally. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, Chili Peppers, they split it all equally, no matter who writes the song. Because Queen, what happened was Queen was like, my dad, people don't know this about my dad. He could write out the trumpet parts, the bass parts for anything. Oh, wow. He could write treble clef. He could write bass clef. He could write the stuff out. He was musically trained. He taught me to read music when I was 14. He knew his shit. So he was writing songs. Eric was writing songs and Jack was writing songs. Now, of course, they got together. Okay, we've all, you know, had two, three weeks of writing songs. My dad was shot with a couple of songs. Eric was shot with a couple of songs. Jack was shot with 2,000 songs. <laughs> you know, and it would be like, okay, it's, it's a Jack Bruce album. Right. You know, because Jack would just be, you know, he'd just write constantly, write all the fucking stuff and everything. Yeah. And then Pete Brown would write all the lyrics. You okay. know, so Pete Brown and Jack pretty much got a lot of royalties from everything. I know there was something that went down when I was seeing my dad in Italy about the royalties because Robert Stigwood, the management for Cream, was still taking 20%. And, and, you know, even though they didn't even exist anymore, I don't think he was even alive, but the management company was still creaming off 20% of the royalties. Um, And, you know, Eric and my dad did some kind of deal to get their royalties, um, you know, get you know get some of their royalties that's yeah. why eric was really i mean i told eric and i i you know eric to me is like the guy who helped my dad out the most he was there for my dad for his entire life i mean yeah. i i heard stories from eric about you know when my dad was drunk and he shop his house and all kinds of stuff and wow and you know i mean i just eric was there for my dad he bailed my dad out constantly for his life and i've told eric this and i'll tell him again you know i just to me eric you're 
I look up to you because you were there for my dad. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, I, he tried to help us out, but, you know, towards the end, I know he tried to help us out, but could see, you know, bypassed it all, his wife, and it all went to, you know, her, her tribes in Africa and stuff. I mean, because my dad was broke at the end, and he shouldn't have been broke. Yeah. No, yeah. He shouldn't have been. He, he was, you know, Ina, the agent, and, and he just, all the bad people in the world that could possibly get around my dad got around him in the last 10 years yeah, and just took advantage funny. of him and just milked him to the end of his, put the last nails in his coffin. Yeah. And my sister was trying to protect my dad from these, these agents and these people. And, and there's even a Facebook page that, that the agent has put up with my dad saying, my sister blocked me from the Ginger Baker page. Uh, I mean, my daughter blocked me from the Ginger Baker page and it's not the Ginger Baker page anymore. And because Ina and Kutsi pushed my dad and my sister said, no, you can't do that. And so they told my dad to cut ties with Nettie and Nettie was doing all my dad's media. She started the Facebook page. She was doing all the media for him. So oh. it's just like, screw you. I'm not giving you the Facebook page. Yeah. I'm going to keep it going as the family yeah, and, exactly. and block my dad because my dad was Ina and his wife were doing all the work for my dad. It wasn't my dad. Uh. This is what you got to realize that if you go to that Facebook page, I don't know what it's called. It's called Ginger Baker official page. And it's got a first thing is a video of my dad going, Oh, this is, this is not real. And it's fake. It's my dad basically just pissed off with my sister because, you know, we had a very volatile family and just yeah. trying to put my sister, you know, trying to, you know, Ina and Chrissy coaxing my dad to, you know, put my sister down. So that's all it really was. It was just, you know, them saying, yeah, say this and say this. And you could even tell, I know my dad yeah. and you couldn't even tell they were telling him what to say. Uh. And my dad was so pushed over by that time. He didn't know what to do. Kutsi had him, you know, he's mine. And she would, you know, she, he was scared of her. He was scared. I wow. mean, my sister's got emails and stuff with my dad going, help me, help me, you know, help me, get me. And he was yeah. scared to leave because, he couldn't go anywhere because she had complete power of attorney over him. She had complete control. He, he'd lost everything. Oh, so, God. So it was like, it was so sad. It was just like this agent and wife just. And so nowadays I look at it and I'm like, if you if you want to go to a page and see what my dad's family, would you go to the page that my dad's family's running? Or would you go to the page that his last agent is running? Oh, God, yeah. It's <laughs> like, I mean, it's like the, she doesn't even know that Ina doesn't even know my dad. Yeah. All she knows from my dad is how to make money from him for getting him playing stupid gigs he shouldn't have even been playing. You know, so it's it was <sighs> you know, you go on Facebook, you you'll see it. You know, you'll see it all there. But but I suggest go to the real page that's ran by Nettie, my sister. Uh, that's the real official page. That's okay. the one that's real. That's run by us. We we the family run it. You know, we have all the media stuff and everything. So, you know, there you go. When did you decide to do your own album, the Charisma album? Well, I, well, you see, I was always into original music. I was never into playing covers. Okay. I was always into playing writing. I mean, I wrote so many songs. I play keyboards too, so I'd write songs. So, you know, I would write. I prefer to write from the drum kit because... Uh, you know, I prefer to sit there and have other people play. I don't like it when I have to sit on the keyboards for hours playing. I, I prefer to play drums. Right. So I prefer to be writing from the drum stool, you know, saying, hey, do this. And what about put that key and take this time signature? But, 
but I write a lot of music on the keys. So um, I was always doing original music. I, I didn't get into playing covers until later on. You know, it was basically 2005 when I started doing the Cream Experience. Right. Yeah. Um, all of that was all original music. So the the Mojo Tapestry was originals. The Charisma was the Mojo Tapestry Charisma album was actually the Charisma album was meant to be the Mojo album. Oh, okay. The, the management gave me $2,000 to go record an album. And I got together with Rick Fribachi, Brett Garcid, and TJ Helmrich in LA at MI Music School. And uh, we did this album at MI Music School, and it came out so good that Rick said, I'm not giving this to your the manager for two grand. This is a great <laughs> album. I've got to, I've got to produce an album. He gave me two grand, yeah. and I paid I paid them all six hundred and sixty six dollars sixty six cents. Split it three ways. TJ, nice, uh, Brett, and and uh, and Rick, and so I paid them six six six. And I got in my truck after the session, and my truck caught fire. Oh, <laughs> I was like my solenoid. The wires had caught fire from the exhaust manifold and oh. just caught fire. I had to fix it on the street. Oh Luckily, God. I know mechanics, so I could fix it. But, <laughs> but um, so I thought that has to be something to do with six six six. I yeah. know. I mean, maybe. It's a <laughs> but anyway, so so I had to produce an album for this thing. So Rick goes, you know what? Here we got together. We just wrote a whole bunch of stuff really quickly, and did a jam. The last song is a jam, and then gave that was charisma. So my <laughs> solo album, my first real solo album is basically offcuts and and just jams that we had to put together really quick because my real solo album ended up being tapestry that was you know oh, ended up wow. being rick and and which was kind of cool because i don't think charisma ever got released i don't know i found one copy of it for sale on discogs oh. and it's 80 bucks 80 bucks yeah <laughs> Where's my $79? He's <laughs> 66 bucks. You'll get 66 of that. Actually, where's my 79 cents? Is more like it. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I found there's one copy for sale on Discogs. That's, that's it. That's the, I okay, well, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of like, um, I mean, one of the tracks is me playing drums on Mars, right? It's yes. me playing, me playing a, like a drum thing in the studio. I did this drum thing and the guy goes, well, why don't you put some keyboards to it? So I grabbed the keyboard <laughs> and I just just did a one take keyboard line over this drum solo thing, and that was it. Oh. That became drums on Mars. Was like because it was so out there because it was like I was listening to my drum solo going, okay, well this, and I did this, and I was just hitting keys, and like I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like trying to follow my drum solo with keyboards and making it up as I went. And and the guy goes, I think it's great, and I go. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds a bit <laughs> off, but he you know, goes, I think we should call it Drums on Mars, and that's where. So I was like, okay. The Charisma is really, it's really like the last track on Christmas, Jam, jam Donuts. It's a jam. 
this is basically a, a jam that we did. And one of the other ones, uh, I can't remember one of the other tracks, was a loop or that Rick wrote and said, play drums for this. And I just played drums over it. So the first track though, the first track, Turkey and Rice is me playing everything except for the guitar and the tambourine. Oh man, see, you're making me want to hear this. Yeah, I mean, that is the one track that I think on the Charisma album, which I like. I don't really like the guitar on the front of it. I think it's a bit weird, but I like the rest of the guitar, but I didn't play guitar. I played bass. I did keyboard bass on it. I did all the lead lines on the keyboards and the drums. And we ended up keeping because I quantized all the bass. Okay. And the keyboard lines on my keyboard. So they're all in perfect time. And then I put the drums over the top. So I did it backwards. Oh, wow. I played the drums to the music because I'm a better drummer than I am a keyboard player. So I figured I could play drums to the better in time to the keyboard lines and I can play time better to the, the drums. Because when I'm playing keyboards, I'm searching for notes more. You know, uh, I'm not so fluent. Okay. So, you know, I might be hesitant, but on the drums, I know what I'm doing. So I played all the keyboard lines and then quantize it so it's perfectly in time, and then play the drums over the top. And I that is one of my favorite tracks, Turkey and Rice, because that bass line is mine, the lead lines are mine, all the keyboard lines are mine, everything's mine. The only thing I'm not playing is the guitar and the tambourine. Oh, it was overdubbed. Damn, now I want to hear this so badly. I can't find it anywhere. But that, yes. But, well, I mean, I don't know if I even have a copy. Yeah, well, I know I have a copy of a bit of Turkey and Rice because it's on the CD that go, comes with my drum book because I put it on the front of my drum book as an introduction to show what you can do with times because Turkey and Rice is a, is a polyrhythm song. It's the same yeah. click through the whole song, but it changes time. So it's a polyrhythm. And I wanted oh, wow. to, I wanted to show before I went into teaching the book, what polyrhythms can achieve. Okay. I mean, people don't realize Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Mm -hmm. Those two things are the same tempo, same time. The da 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 bump bump. It's like da 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 bump bump. Here, look. Okay. Um, let, me give, let me give you a stick here. Yeah. So look, if you're going, if you're going like da 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 bump 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 bump. There's your both rib, ribs at the same time. Oh bump, wow. That's a two against three polyrhythm. Oh wow. You know, George Martin was classically trained. He knew all these polyrhythms. You know, and it happens a lot. She's so heavy. It's the same click track through that. There's, you know, there's all things that you think change time, but they're not. That George Martin's very clever. Wow. He's very good at the polyrhythm. So I wanted to explain that polyrhythms have been used to achieve the most amazing songs. And nowadays, people don't use them. I mean, Jungle Boogie, Jungle Boogie, but da 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 da, da is a three against four polyrhythm. So oh, there is a few here and there, but. But not today, music is a do, do. In fact, I was going to sit there with a guitar around my neck, a keyboard in front of me, and a kick drum, and just play the kick drum for three minutes, just on the quarter note, and go, there you go. There's your song. <laughs> because that's what they want. Wow. I actually, what gave me the inspiration to do that was I was playing a club, and a song came on, and for the first minute, it was just that, boom. So everybody could dance. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and why do why do you think today's music has to have such a big light show and so much dancers and so much visual entertainment? Because if you close your eyes, it doesn't mean shit. It's all the same. You know, I mean, nowadays you have to have the visual entertainment. Back in the yeah. day, you used to light up a joint and close your eyes and listen yeah. to the music. 
Yeah. You know, and that was it. You know, nowadays you've got to fucking, you know, you've got to be on acid, on acid. You've got to be on coke and watching all the dancers or yeah. speed. Both speed and coke. <laughs> you know. But you know, that's the thing. It's just like I wish music would come back to real musicians. You know, I mean, it's fortunate. I mean. I have a studio, so I do a lot of session work, and I I yeah. take easy route. You know, I'm doing a session. I'll take the I'll play the verse, loop it, the chorus, loop it. You know, I'll just loop the parts, tie it together, paste. You know, off there's your track. You know, wow. I don't play the whole track all the way through anymore because they want the snare drum to sound the same from the beginning to the end, exactly the same decibels and exactly the same. Oh. Back in the old days, the snare drum sound would change. You know, with the feel of how the drum was playing it. Yeah. Yeah, the track. You know, it'd be up, down. You know, there'd be dynamics. Nowadays, the drums don't have dynamics. It's the same thing. So you can't really do that unless you loop the drums. You know, so that's what they want. They want that looped, that loop beat. And so that's what's happened to the music business. People don't know how to play anymore. That's why I think live music is so good. Even though yeah. if you go to a big gig. Unless you're going to go see someone like Eric Clapton or someone who actually has their musicians really know what they're doing. Like, you know, Eric's got Steve Gadd playing drums with him and people yeah. like that, you know. So you've got real musicians on stage. But if you go watch Britney Spears or Yanni, or, I mean, Yanni had good musicians, but it was all dat tapes. Oh, you know, really? it's all, you know, yeah, it's all playing to dat tapes. I mean, oh, wow. all of those bands, all those bands you see nowadays, it's all, watch the drummer. Cause I think it's kind of fun watching a drummer sometimes. Cause he's playing. Sometimes they have these really good gospel drummers and they're doing all this cool shit behind the stuff. And it's not, you can barely hear it in the background underneath this. That's keeping the, you know, that's obviously not the drama. It's just the, the, the what they're playing to. Yeah. That's why I just hope it, you know, I hope this COVID thing ends and we can get back to live music and yeah, get back to really doing it again because this last well, two years have sucked. Well, you you guys are are about to head out on tour. The music of Cream. That you've been working with the Cream catalog for a number of years at this point. Right. Well, I 2005 the reunion. I went to a Madison Square Gardens, the yeah. Madison Square Gardens concert, and I was like. I kind of like this stuff. I mean, I'd heard it before, but I hadn't really delved into it because it's my dad's music. I don't want to play my dad's shit. Right. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I love jazz. My dad brought me up to love jazz and improv, and I'm really good at improvisation and jazz. And I was like, this cream stuff lends itself to that because it's like, it's like a head of a, it's a jazz tune just played commercially. And my dad, Eric and Jack made a, they made a, a Pacific, they intentionally made it commercial. Okay. You know, they could intentionally say, we're going to do something commercial to sell because my dad had three kids at this point. Right. Know, I was just being born. We had Nettie and Leader, and I was on the way. So they had to make some money, you know? So they, they basically just took some commercial songs and then just jammed over them, you know, had jams and, and, uh -huh. you know, like, you know, my dad and Jack would say, you know, my dad would say, it's a jazz band. Eric doesn't know it. You know, yeah, <laughs> just, we never told Eric, but um, I started listening to that in 2005 and thinking, you know what? And then my dad had an argument with Jack at the end of the 2005, and they were going to do more gigs. And and my dad's like, I'm not fucking doing this anymore. I uh, screwed Jack, uh, and I don't need the money anyway. I made five million dollars. You know, I'm like, oh. Dad, you made five million dollars. You know what you should do? You should buy property. Yeah. Screw you. Oh. I'm not buying. I'm buying myself 20 polo horses from London for $25,000 a horse 
I'm going to spend $2 million flying into Africa where they're worth nothing because the quarantine won't let them out of the country. Oh. Uh, I'm like, that's smart. That's good. And now and then I'm going to pay Argentinian polo players five grand a week to come play with me. Good job. So that oh $5 million God. lasted about a year or two. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, and then, then I was like, you know, my mum was like, before you blow all your money, buy your son a car at least. You never got him anything. At yeah. least buy him a car before you blow your $5 million. And my dad calls me up and goes, your mom said I should get you a car. I'm like, what do you want? I go, my truck is like, you know, I learned mechanics because I built my truck. I put the engine in, the transmission, the doors, the axles, wow. the driving steering column. I put that, I, I bought an old truck with a blown engine and rebuilt the entire thing. Oh, that's awesome. So, so I knew how mechanics, so I was like, well, my, my truck is great. I love it. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's elder block intake out, you know, I don't know if you know anything yeah. about mechanics, Yeah. but I had like, I had a raised intake space side elder block and a spacer and a 450 CFM elder block carb oh, headers, nice. you know, RV cam, you know, I went to town on this truck. It That's was like, awesome. it was, but it was like, you know, 15 gallons to the mile. Yeah. No. You know, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I know Chevelle that was it like was that. Not economical. Yeah. So I said to you know, Dad, buy me a truck. Buy me a new truck. Well, how much a truck? So I'm like, well, I think you could get you know a work truck for like twenty grand. You know, no yeah. bells and whistles. He goes, well, I'll give you fifteen. Okay. I'm like, okay, fifteen's like okay, you know, three quarters of a truck. I'll go with that. <laughs> you know, so so he gave me fifteen grand. I sold my truck that I loved for. For a grand, which was oh. stupid because I just I just spent twelve hundred dollars on tires. Oh, but no. um, well, I'm really bad with stuff. Like I'm like, oh, you want to buy my truck? Oh, well, you know my steering column thing leaks. Uh, this is wrong with it, and that's wrong. With it. I, you know, I tell them everything is wrong with it, and then I, I wouldn't pay more than a thousand dollars for it. So yeah, thousand oh, dollars. I'm like, what did I just what did I just do? I just spent twelve on the tires. You just bargained so yourself like, down. Yeah, and then I I had a Toyota Supra. And I sold that for three grand and I had a DW drum kit, which I sold for three grand. Oh. And that together gave me the extra money to buy the truck. And I had to put a thousand dollars into a camper shell for the, the shell for the truck. So I sold my super, my drum kit, my truck for this truck with my dad's 15 grand. On it. But I got a brand new 2007 truck with seven <laughs> miles on it, drove it off the lot brand new. And I was like, that's an achievement there you know, to actually own a brand new it's the only one I've ever owned, obviously. Yeah. But I still have it. I oh, still awesome. have the truck. And then my, my dad was like, what, five or six years ago, he was broke. And he was like asking us when my mom died, he was asking us all for money. And I was like, dad, I, you know, I tied up all my money into this house I bought. I bought a house with all the money. Yeah. He goes, well, you got that truck. I go, yeah, we'll sell the truck. <laughs> I'm like, dad, <laughs> it's the only truck I got now. I sold my, I can't sell the truck. Right now, it's like it's like ten years old. I'm the only owner. It's it's better for me to keep it because yeah. if I sell it, I won't get the money it's worth because I I've changed the oil. I've done all the transmission changes. I've done the coolant changes. That thing's immaculate. You know, I mean, I yeah. won't get my money back on it. No, and then you're gonna talk you the buy, other person into paying less anyway. Exactly. <laughs> if you buy if you buy a brand new car off the lot, you should drive that car till it's dead. Yeah. Otherwise, you won't get your money back. Oh, no. You know, if you, God, if never. You get a, you know, 
if you don't want to do that, buy a car that's two, three years old and then yeah. sell it. Because, you know, at least you won't, you know, you drive a car off the lot and then you've lost half your money. Exactly. I've repaired everything on that truck and it's still going. It just passed its 100,000 miles. Oh, nice. Very. Yeah. But that, on a 2007? Little... Yeah, but I, wow. I, uh, it's only done uh, gigs. Oh, okay. I have a car. I have a car and I have a small kit. So I, all local gigs I do in my car with a, with a five piece. Okay. But all the big gigs, that truck has only, it's been around America probably four times, but it's always done, you know, big journeys. Every time I take that truck out, it's, you know, it's 5,000 miles on it. It's know? all highway miles. So it's all highway miles. So I've never even replaced the brakes, original brakes. Wow. But, you know, I don't really I'm, – I'm a European driver again, so I don't go accelerator to brake, accelerator to brake like they do yeah. out here. Yeah. You know, if, if the light's red, if the light's red, you're going to be pissed off if you're behind me because I'm going to be moseying up to that red light yeah. with my, my car in neutral. Uh, you know, so, and then, then I got people behind me like – I mean, I've got videos of people behind me just blaring their horn because the light's turning red and I'm not racing up to it. But that's why I've got the original brake pads on it because, you know, when I'm on a freeway, I judge my traffic and I judge myself and I don't slam my brakes on up to a stop yeah. sign or a red light, you know. How did you get the, the music of Cream started again? I know that, that started with Malcolm oh, and you. Oh, I mean, that's, that's like eight podcasts alone. I'll try and shorten it. I'll try and shorten it as best I can. Okay. Okay. So me and Malcolm have known each other since we were kids, you know, 14, 15, not real young, but 14, 13, 15, somewhere in that. Um, so we've always played together, but you know, we've always been into, you know, jazz and fusion and all that kind of stuff. So never really cream. So when I got into playing the cream stuff later on, I was like, Malcolm, you want to do cream? And he was like, no, I don't want to play my dad's. I don't want to play cream stuff. Um, so we never really did the cream stuff. And then I was in a band, an original band, and they wanted us to do some cream songs. And I, I said, Malcolm, let's do them. We tried to do them, and, and it was like Malcolm had no way. I played a few of them because, you know, I played a few of them. But Malcolm hadn't. So it's like a deer in headlights. We're playing White Room or something, and he has no idea how it goes. Oh, wow. And I'm like, well, and the club owner was kind of pissed. So. So I never really did that again. There was a guy called Godfrey Townsend, guitar player. Okay. Worked with famous people. And he said, look, I'll get you together. You and Malcolm will call it Sons of Cream. And I was like, okay. I said, but Malcolm doesn't know any cream. And Godfrey got together with Malcolm and they rehearsed all the cream. Godfrey showed him all the cream stuff and Malcolm learned all the cream stuff. Wow. And we got together and we did this band called Sons of Cream, which was me, Malcolm, and Godfrey Townsend. Malcolm always never really wanted to play cream. He always wanted to do his original stuff. He had, he was always writing, you know, a, a play or this or that, you know, he's very classical keyboard. So his heart okay. was never into playing cream stuff. So he was always, you know, every interview, if we had Malcolm on this interview right now, if we were doing a podcast with Malcolm, you'd be asking me a question. He'd be like, well, no, don't worry. Don't talk about cream. Now my play, 
Now, my original <laughs> song, I'm doing, I'm doing this band. Oh, music, no, don't worry about that. I've got this. And so it was a little bit hard. I would say, Malcolm, look, I'm really into this now. I mean, for me, it's like, for me, it's like, I feel like it's my, what I should be doing in my life is keeping that stuff going. I mean, yeah. I like my original music and I've still got it and I still write original music, but my life goal is to keep my dad's legacy going. I promised it to him before he died on his dying bed. I wow. promised I would keep his legacy going. I promised I would do that. And he seemed like to me, he seemed really happy about it. He was, he was smiling and he was happy and he was laughing. And I've never seen my dad like that. Wow. So, That's amazing. So for me, it's like, it's in my heart. So, you know, Malcolm never really wanted to do it. So unfortunately now we let Malcolm do his thing. We had to let Malcolm, you know, okay, Malcolm, go do your thing. Yeah. You know, we weren't going to force you to do this anymore. Go do your thing. And me and Will are keeping it going. And we've got great musicians, you know, we've got some great guys that we got together to oh, do yeah. it. So that's, so now the music of cream is me and Will keeping it going. Um, we've got Steve Ball on keyboards and Chris Lone on bass. Uh, for this next up and coming tour, which hopefully we start in spring because the European side already canceled because of COVID. Oh, did it? Wow. We were meant to be in, in Europe in February. We were meant to be doing Europe, but that canceled. So now we're April, starting in Florida, I think. And I also have my psychedelic trip band, which I'm doing as well, which plays locally around uh, where I live. Oh, cool. Which um, we don't do so much cream, we do more. We do some cream songs, but it's more Blind Faith, Hendrix, Beatles, Led Zeppelin, all kinds of stuff. Um, awesome. You know, all kinds of weird stuff that I like. All the psychedelic music I like. Yeah. So it's a lot more of a various stuff. The music of Cream and Clapton Classics, which we tour, is we do the Disraeli Gears album from beginning to finish, the whole album. We tag on the Cream songs that are not on the album that we like, we think, and then we do... Clapton songs, you know, so there's some cream songs in the Clapton classics as well, but we do, cool. you know, the Clapton side, which is Will's side. I'm not really that up on the Clapton stuff. I know it now, but, you know, I not, didn't really, I wasn't really, a, you know, a cocaine or a Layla or, you know, uh, those, that, those kind of songs were not really my, what I got into. Yeah. Um, I was more into Frank Zappa and that kind of stuff. And I, I like the, I like the cream stuff because there's jams in the cream stuff. There's not yeah. jams really. But Eric is jamming out more now. He seems to be, you know, stretching it out a lot more now when he plays the stuff. So I think he's getting back to that stuff. You oh, know? That's, um, I've been following him lately. That's that's uh, that's good to hear because yeah, I, mean, I love that stuff. I've, I never really, I never really knew Clapton until um, I mean I knew him, I met him, but I never really knew him. Nobody really sat down and talked to him until my dad's memorial. Yeah, and. He's definitely the most sane out of the three of them. Yeah. You know, he's definitely one you can actually have a conversation with without having to worry about what's going to happen. Um, so, and he's, he seems like a really down to earth guy. I mean, I really liked him and, and I, you know, I really like him because he was my dad's friend, you know, he's yeah. my dad's best friend. So I really have a lot of love for Eric and um, I've been, you know, dad, I never really studied Gad that much, you know. Okay. And then playing with Gad, I was like, this guy is just like, he doesn't have to, he can hit the tom once and it's just like, that is beautiful. Yeah. He doesn't even have to play two hits. He's just, he just has this feel. And when you play with him, you're engulfed in this bubble and it's oh, like a wow. warm, relaxed, beautiful bubble. And you just, it just makes you play beautiful when you're oh, playing with him. And I was just that's like, awesome. 
God, man, I'm now I'm like, I got on YouTube and I started studying him. I started learning his riffs. I was like, man, God, you're my new, my new guy. I didn't realize yeah. how much he had been on until recently. I mean, he's, he's played on so much. What? He's, he, his dad's been on so much? Yeah. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I on it. yeah. I didn't realize how much he's, he's played on, you know, some, all, a lot of the, the music that I grew up listening to. I just, I didn't realize that was him. Right. Steely Dan. Yeah. You know, um, so much stuff. I mean, he's just such a great drummer and he's such a great guy. That's awesome. He's such a great, relaxed. His drumming is like him, just beautiful. Oh, you know, it's awesome. just amazing. So, um, you know, I, I got Gad's number and I text him and he's like, don't text me, call me. I don't deal with it. So now I, you know, I, I want to call him up all the time and go, Gad, you're fucking amazing. But I'm like, I don't want to pester him. You know, but I just want to call him up all the time and go, Gad, I love you, man. I love you. Well, I'll tell but you I'm what. sure he gets that all the time. So, you know. You call him up. We'll do a podcast with the both of you. And you can tell him the whole podcast how much you love him. Yeah. <laughs> how you'll love that. Yeah. <laughs> how can people find the, uh, the tour dates and, and keep track of where the music of Cream is going to be playing? Okay, well, you can always go to kofibaker.com. Okay. So that's my name, K-O-F-I-B-A-K-R.com, kofibaker.com. Or you can go to musicacream.com. The good thing about kofibaker.com is it has all my local dates on it as well. Oh, cool. So you can see, if you're local to me, you can see where I'm playing locally. So that would be a good thing to just, if, you, if you're anywhere near Illinois or Indiana or anywhere in that vicinity, you know, I play those areas pretty. You know, sometimes I get out to New York or Pennsylvania with my original thing. But the Music of Cream is a good website for the Music of Cream because it's our tour dates that we play around the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, not around the world now, just around America and Canada because the rest of the world is shutting down because of COVID. But um, yeah. again, we've got to get over this COVID thing. I mean, come on, yeah, man. Just, it's, it's enough. Just do some cocaine. I mean, we'll be fine. Yeah. I'm fully vaccinated, but I, I still think cocaine would be better. Yeah, exactly. So am I, and I I've had it twice. Get everybody on coke and yeah. just tell them, like, you know, <laughs> that, that will. Well, you know what? Maybe everybody should just be so drugged out of their minds that they don't even know they got COVID. Exactly. Or you, you just know, sweat it right out of your body. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, unfortunately, it's a, it is a serious thing. I know people that have died. Yeah. And, you know, it is serious. But I just think at this point, two years is enough. I think if you're, if you're really, you know, got a bad immune system and you're not going to vaccinate yourself, you've got to stay home. But don't, don't screw it up for the people that are, you know, are, are well and are vaccinated. Let them go out and do their stuff because yeah. it's like for me in the musician world, we've been crushed. Yes. Not only the musicians, the bar owners, the bar staff, the agents, the, the everybody involved in the music business has been crushed. The entertainment music has been crushed by this, but you yeah. still let people go to Walmart. Yeah, exactly. But you won't let them go to a gig, you know? And it's like, you know, I just think enough. I mean, this was one of Eric's thing was like, I think Eric was like enough. 
Yeah. Let's just get over it. Just let's just go out there. Is there a social media presence where people can follow you and uh, your bands, the the local ones? Well, I'm on Creed? Facebook. Okay. I'm on Facebook. I'm on. I think my girlfriend handles my Twitter and my Instagram for me because I don't know how to do all that stuff, but she handles it for me. So you, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And um, I do do my own Facebook. I try to stay off uh, political stuff and everything yeah. on it. So I try and keep it, you know, because I put a few political things. Of what I mean, Facebook asks you, what's on your mind? Well, this is on my mind. Then I get like, Tons of people pissed off at me. Well, ask me what's on my mind. Yeah, and then they ban you for it. Yeah, this is my personal page. I'm not allowed to say what's on my mind. You know, so so I keep (laughs) off the political stuff. I keep away from religion. I keep away from political stuff. I just keep it about the music because, you know, that's the most peaceful and the most best thing to do, I think. And I don't want to live a life fighting with people, you know. So I know Republicans and Democrats, which are great, great people, well, Kofi, man, I thank you so much. I've kept you for quite a while here tonight, but thank you. It's been a, it's been just awesome talking with you. I really appreciate all the time you spent. Oh, great. Well, thank you. I'm sure we can do it again. And where are you? Where are you based? I'm in uh, Virginia. I'm in Winchester, Virginia. Okay. So, so I'm, you're going to come out to a show, so I'll get to meet you, right? Yeah. I, I was talking to to Will the other day. I'm going to try to get to the show you guys are doing in at uh, Alexandria. Okay, great. So, well, definitely. Uh, Get backstage and, and come see us. I, will, I, I was a photographer for like 15 years professionally. I'm bringing oh. my camera. I'm gonna, I want to shoot oh, the show. Good. And uh, yeah. I'll share some photos with you guys, and we'll hang out and have a, a, a maybe a beer. Probably not cocaine, but some beer. Yeah, I don't drink, though. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. So we just have to have a muffin or a joint. Uh, there you go. Maybe some tea. <laughs> my, is it legal in Virginia? It's probably not, is it? I don't... I don't think so i don't know i don't probably not i don't do that i I see i'm the exact opposite of you i'll have a drink but that's about as far as i go so i like my whiskey so okay (laughs) yeah i just i'm I'm just not a drinker i I mean i find i find that the pot i've got screwed up back i have no l5 so Uh, um so that the eating the smoking it doesn't really help but eating it takes my pain away oh that's so it's funny that's that's funny my day job is uh, I work for uh, a medical device company. We make spinal implants. Ah. So. See, that's what I've got to figure out because I've got a thing called partial lumbarization. Okay. So, so my L5 didn't form properly, and I'm not connected. My sacrum's not connected. And I've got an extra lumbar that sticks out. Oh, wow. So, so what I have to do is every probably three months, I'm on the floor for two or three days, and I can't move. But, but when my back is normal... I have this thing where I just lean to my left and my back will clunk back into position. And then after about an hour, it will be, it'll start really hurting. And I have to clunk it back. So I have to com- completely wow. cl- keep adjusting my L5 back into position. Wow. So, so it's really kind of screwed up. So, so I've got a stability issue. I suppose I'm going to have to get like some kind of a plate or something, get, you know, welded or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hang upside down every day. I've got the inversion table for when my back really goes out, but when my back's fine, I have the boots and the bar. Oh, cool. I haven't so tried I, that. I, I, go, I go on the boots and I do crunches, and that's how I do a lot of my exercise. And that, apparently, I've been doing it since I was 20. So apparently, when I got hit by a car and they found out, they x-rayed me and they go, what the hell? You got and hit by go, a car? Like, yeah. Oh go, my- to, go to YouTube. Go to YouTube and put in Kofi bike. 
Kofi bike. Kofi Baker bike. Put All that right. in YouTube and watch. All right. Watch what happens. I have cameras. I drive. I have a camera in my car, a camera, a truck, a camera when I ride. I have everything on camera. So I got hit by this car. Anyway, when I, you know, I went to the hospital and I went to the chiropractor and they looked at my back because I crushed the nerves in my upper back. Oh. So I lost all the power in my right arm for like six months. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, they, they x-rayed me and they go, well, I know you've got this upper back problem for the accident, but what is going on with the lower back? You've got this thing called partial arm resident. And what we can't figure out is your legs are straighter than a normal person with a crack. Everything's lined up perfectly straight. It's like how, with this condition, you should be crippled. You should be in a wheelchair or, or crippled. You should not be straight. And I go, what the hell have you been doing? I said, well, I've been hanging upside down since I was 20, and I've been working out like nuts, you know, back, lower back workouts and everything. So yeah. what I've done is I've pulled everything straight and then built muscle around it. So that's the only reason like, I'm actually better off than what I should be. Wow. So, that's but, you know, it's starting to get bad now. So I think as I'm getting older, I'm going to have to get this, you know, get yeah. the fusion thing. Well, hopefully it, but, it'll be a lot easier than it used to be for you. So. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, because I mean, I'd love to not have to be every three months, you know, scream at my uh, girlfriend's daughter. Yeah. For no reason. Oh. <laughs> so much well, man, thank you so much. Right, thank you so much. All right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.